0: So for those of us who did Leviticus, I I think it's so important with precept that you keep going back to these old studies and then pulling them in and trying to lay them in on top of what you're doing right now. It helps to refresh your memory, and it also helps to weave it and knit it all together for you in your mind, right? So this weekend, some of our homework, particularly when it was talking about the bloody city, Some of the inferences that were made in there had made references basically to how they were breaking Levitical law. Exactly. So I I am after I read this, but I'm having a hard time. I'm exhausted already. (laughs) I will. I want to read a scripture and I'm going to read. So I'm going to read from you out of Leviticus 26. And the reason I want to do this is because we did study this, and you are going to be so surprised when I read this how much this fits right into Ezekiel. It's like taking our Leviticus study and going, oh, didn't we just do this, right? He's saying verbatim. So when was Leviticus written? When was it Moses, it was, it was Israel, in, in the, when they were about to come into the land, God was giving them their Levitical law. The whole, the whole thing that we've been talking about here is these three covenants, right? We have the Abrahamic covenant, and what did they promise Abraham? Land, right? Seed, and then a nation, right? And we know the seed is Christ, correct? Then there was the law. And I'm going to put it this way. The law of the land. land. Do you get it? Mm-hmm. The law of the land. So um, a couple of things have kind of come up with this. I'm gonna, I'll talk about it later. I'm going to jump it right in here. The land. So these are ordinances and um, uh, religious uh, ceremonies and, and statutes, right? All right? So it's basically, it's how they live as a people. The next covenant is where you and I are, right? The new covenant. And, it, and, it's, and it's faith. It's, a, it's for salvation, of course. How about this one? Resulted in his salvation, Right? And it was faith. So this one is for salvation, and this one is for salvation. It's the spirit on the, in the heart, right? Instead of law, contrasting with the law, laws on stone. Okay. So I'm only putting that up there to kind of put you in perspective to what we're looking at here. Those are super... Simplified points about those three covenants. But I have found that through my conversations and through emails that are coming to me, that people are getting these things mixed up. And as we are going through Ezekiel, you have to remember that God is dealing with them for this right here. This is not a covenant of salvation, it's a covenant for permission to live upon the land and be called God's people. So that they would be a light to the world and the world would see God through the way that they lived. See he is righteous. See that he is holy. Yes. It's a national covenant. That is super important. Right. Conditional. Oh, I love having all my my covenant students here. You guys are great. Okay, so big difference, don't you think, between the Abrahamic and the new? Mm-hmm. These, these first two on either side of it are salvation. Abraham believed on the coming seed. Now, in the new covenant, we believe that the seed came. And it's a believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that love him. That's the simplest form of it. We believe that he sent the seed, that he, that he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected, Right? and that through faith on him that we have eternal life. That's it. It's faith. Abraham, that's what Abraham was believing too. He was believing on the other side of the cross saying, I believe you are sending that seed, right? And also in the promises to him besides the seed, he also said, by the way, Abraham, to you and your descendants, I'm going to give you that land and nation. So then when they got ready to go on the land... These laws had to be given to them so that they knew how to live on the land so that they would represent God well. So here we are in Leviticus. Now let me read this to you. He says to them, back then, at the very beginning of their nation, He said, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar. Nor shall you place a disfigured stone in your land and bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary." I am the Lord, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in their season so that the lamb will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. He goes on and talking about all these blessings, blessings, blessings. Fourteen, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if indeed you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, right, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also. You shall sorrow. Oh, oh, you shall uh, sow your seed uselessly and your enemies shall eat it up. And I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. If also these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more than your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be "...spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. If then you act with hostility against me, and are unwilling to obey me, and you won't repent, right? Even though I've done these things, and you won't, still won't repent, I will increase the plagues on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your cattle, and reduce your number, so that your roads lie desert." Oh, sorry, deserted. And if by these things you are not turning to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sin. So he goes on and continues to talk about that. He says in 34, then the lamb will, he's talking about, then, however, if you don't do these things, then I am going to bring these enemies against you. And he said in 34, then, then the lamb will enjoy its Sabbath. I, I love that. I got this great article about how Israel is now observing their their, their Sabbaths today in Israel. And I wonder, I'm going to read uh, part of this to you here. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths, all the days of the desolation, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths, all its days of its desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbath while we, while you were living on it. Remember how we said how long are they going to be in captivity? When the seventy years? Why seventy years? Because the number of years. because the number of sins that for every seven, every years, seven years they, they were let, leave the land. resting right. Every seven years they were to leave the land resting, and they didn't. And you multiply that seven. Uh, times the number of years that they were on the land, then you come up with the 70 years. So he says, "And, And all the days of its desolation it will observe the rest that it did not observe on your Sabbath while you were living in it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them, and even when no one is pursuing, they will flee, as though the sword... As though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing, and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquities in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquity of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. If they confess their iniquity, however, if, and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they have committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them to the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then... I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. So which one is that? That's the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying, I'll remember that covenant. Are you getting it? I'll remember that covenant. Because why? That's a covenant of what? Faith and salvation. And he says, if you will humble yourselves, confess your sins, turn to me, then I will remember that covenant He's not saying I'll remember the covenant of the law of the land. I'll remember the, the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, and then, and then I will also remember the land because part of Abraham's promise was to have a land for the people. But so, so many of the people who went into the covenant of the law never entered into salvation. That's true. They entered into the covenant of the law and said, yes, we will. Why? Because God's going to do good things for us. Right? He's promised to bless us, and so sure, I'm going I'm to agree to that, and that's what they did, but they still never entered into this Abrahamic covenant, okay? For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall take up its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. So now he's talking in the days of Leviticus when he's first establishing this law, he's talking about what he's going to be doing right here in Ezekiel. He's saying, the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for the Sabbaths while it's made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Why not? What did he promise Abraham? Abraham. He keeps his covenant and he promised Abraham that there would be a nation called Israel that would have their land, right? And that they would be upon their land forever. (laughs) So even though he has to deal with those who are living underneath the law of the land, those people who are not in faith, God is still going to judge. But he's making reference back to to the Abrahamic and basically he's saying, but those of you who, who come into this abrahamic covenant i'm going to bless and he said in spite of this um when they are in the land of their enemies i will not reject them nor will i so abhor them as to destroy them breaking my covenant with them for i am the lord their god now so this is really tricky you have to read leviticus and all of these um old testament prophecies and say which covenant is he talking about sounds like because it's leviticus and he's giving them the law so when he's talking about the covenant, what does your mind do? You go to the law, right? But in actuality, he's referring back to a different co- covenant. Yes. Your last words there, for I am the Lord. and he said that a lot in, yeah. in the, Ezekiel in Leviticus. Yeah. and Leviticus. And then, in the Ezekiel, he said, then you will know, I you will you know that I am the law, Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing? Think about this. This is before they even went on the land, really. That I mean, they were approaching it or they were about to enter in. But they were not on the land yet. And God was giving them these laws. And he was telling them, this is what's... Basically, you're not going to be obedient. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to have to judge you. Because the law of the land is not ever going to keep anyone. That's why obeying God's laws by, by rote external to a relationship with God is of no value. Now, is the law good? Yes. Yes. Does it help us to understand the holiness of God and what he wants from us? Yes. Yes. So it's a valuable tool. Even for Christians in the New Covenant, it's a valuable tool. There are things you have to understand. that Some things applied specifically to the people upon the land at that time. But other things Jesus spoke of in the New Testament and he reiterated them. Things like love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, on these two principles are the whole law and the prophets, right? So even here in Leviticus, he's talking to them about the law of the land that he's given them. saying, if you break it, I won't forget my Abrahamic covenant. Are you catch? Isn't that amazing? I loved it. When I was reading this slide, I went, whoa, I never saw that before. But I will remember for, uh, for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and the laws. Now he's into the law of the land. These are the statutes, the ordinance, and the laws, which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Mo- Moses at Mount Sinai. Wow. Doesn't that fit in beautifully with Ezekiel? I love it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity, as always, Father, to go back and to read and to review and to see the knitting together of your amazing words to us, Father. And Father, what a a storyline it is to see how just how patient you have been with all of us throughout all the ages, but, Father, particularly how patient you have been with your people Israel. And, Father, as we are watching the world today and as we are seeing the unfolding still of this story, we look, Father, with amazement at how you are keeping your word, you are keeping a people, a remnant for yourself. And, Father, in the process, you will, you will purge many Sadly, many who will fall because they do not actually come into a covenant of faith with you. But, Father, we also, uh, for those of us in faith, we are strongly established as we see you fulfill your word, as you do exactly as you've promised. And what a confidence this gives us in knowing the God that we love and serve what a confidence it gives us to know about our future. The things that you have yet said are going to happen, Father, we have a complete assurance that, yes, indeed, they will. And so, Father, thank you so much for that. Thank you for um, showing me this passage in Leviticus and helping me to weave it together into the book of Ezekiel and to see, Father, how even from the very beginning, you told them, you told them, you told them. And, uh, Father, it is just... um, Grace, 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 all through the ages, and and we are just so in awe of you as a God, how patient you are and how loving you are, how you desire so deeply for us to come to know you and uh, to be obedient to you. And Father, not because you're a God who just wants to lord things over us, but, Father, you are the Lord, and you're the Holy One of Israel. You're the Holy God. You are the Lord and God Almighty, and we are so blessed by you. Father, now be with us this morning as we open up Ezekiel. Please help us, Father, by the power of your Spirit to see your insights and truths and to make application for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read just a little bit of this because this is really cool. Israeli farmers sell land to observe law. Okay, so we talked about the fact they're still today trying really hard there's all kinds I get these questions a lot when we we're, we're doing the, the studies about the temple and so forth. Well, how did the Jews keep the law today? Celeste and I bashed this one through a hundred times in our conversations. just um, what is it that israel's doing well they've they, ha- they have manipulated their understandings of the law rather than making you know direct application of the law in order to justify that they are still doing what God wants them to do and that they can still be that that Jewish nation that God wants them to be so here he's saying you know how there's to be a sabbatical rest of the land every seven years right do do you think that that law has changed yet for those who are not under this but are here and they're his nation living on the land and this is the law that they are under They're under it whether they want to be or not simply by virtue of them being there and claiming for God's blessing, right? They go into Israel to live there to be his people. Even if they don't have a faith in what uh, Abraham had faith in, which is that God would send his Savior, right? And if they haven't entered into the new covenant where we are now believing that that seed was Christ who came... But they're living on the land, and they automatically, by default, come underneath this covenant right here, whether they want to or not, okay? So every seven years, by law of the land, they are to give it its rest, right? So here it says, every seven years, according to the Bible, and by the way, the Torah... Farmers must give their lands a rest for a year. So, how do modern day growers reconcile the ancient spiritual practice with the need to feed the country's 8 million mouths? Most market their produce uh, thanks to a clever workaround. They temporarily sold their fa- farms, valued together at 33 billion, to a 25 year old non Jewish telemarketer named George. <laughs> Okay, so they're not farming the land. George is, right? (laughs) Wow, manipulating. I own all those lands, and I don't even own an apartment, joked George, and his name is forever. An immigrant from St. Petersburg, Russia, that's why I can't pronounce it. The seventh year sabbatical called... S-H-M-I-T-A, Shmita? Does anybody know how to pronounce that? Shmita? Shmita, Shmita, okay, in Hebrew. It began last month on the Jewish New Year and extends through the fall of 2015. So this is their sabbatical year in Israel. If you didn't know that, that's interesting. Although only a minority of the Israeli population abides by strict Jewish uh, religious law, nearly all Israeli Jewish farmers choose to follow the biblical directive in part so that they don't lose their orthodox customers' business. I think it's funny how they're calling it biblical because it's not like it's our Bible, it's their Bible, okay? Rabbi um, Ariel, who helped write the government's detailed how-to pamphlets for farmers and gardeners, said that the practice serves as a spiritual reminder, We are not owners of the land. There is a master of the universe. Now, is he correct on that? Yes. Yes, There's a master of the universe. We are only here as as God through God's grace, and He has loaned it for us uh, to us for a period of time. Out of some 6,700 Jewish farmers in Israel, only about 50 ignored the religious rules. While uh, uh, while only about why did they break that word up? Only while only about 450 abandoned their farms together this year. Um, most of the rest opted for George. They sold their farms to the government last month over cookies and orange juice. The government sold the lands to this man, turning the non-Jewish telemarketer into one of Israel's biggest private landowners. Technically, the year-long sale is legally binding. In practice, it is symbolic, but he didn't even take home a copy of the contract will. Isn't that nice of him? So George, who has Jewish roots, said he spent time in a religious seminary when he moved to Israel and considered formally converting to Judaism. In the end, I decided it wasn't for me because I like cheeseburgers, he said in a jest. (laughs) Referring to Jewish dietary rules banning the mixture of dietary and meat. See, there's another one of the rules. And because not everyone needs to be Jewish, he said, <laughs> I can be a good person, I can be a good person, and that's, and that's it, that's good enough. That's the world. Now, is that not what, how, who was in Sunday school yesterday for my, our Sunday school class? Yeah, and that exactly, it's okay, I can just get there, whatever. He maintained good, um, good ties with a rabbi from the seminary who introduced him to Israel's Chief uh, rabbinite for the sale. He said he paid 2,000 shekels or about $540 for the land with gift, money gifted to him by an official involved in the ceremony. Can that be true? $540? Well, it's because it's a salt for show. It to do with truth. Unbelievable. Some farmers employ another clever solution to avoid tilling the soil. They use hydrophonics, growing produce not in soil but in nutrient-enhanced water. Now, here's the question. What, what was the purpose of the resting of the land for a year? Every seventh year, give it its sabbatical. Sure. We, we think of the natural, don't we? We think of, oh, it's good for the soil. Okay, beyond that, do you think that's, God could not make that soil good? Trusting God. It was all about trusting God. And it's symbolic to the seventh day of rest that we observe on, on our day of rest on Sunday. Now, well, we do it on Sunday now. But it, it, the purpose of it is that you trust God. God is the provider. He's done all the work, and you are recognizing that. That's what the, sabbat- the sabbatical year is about. So they're getting around it by finding other means to still till and provide for themselves, but they're not technically keeping the Sabbath. That's that sabbatical year. Um, he said um, they grow organic romaine lettuce, kale. Uh, he goes on and talks about all the things he does. His greenhouse follows specific guidelines that uh, certify the produce kosher. Of course. they yeah. got to make sure they keep that law. For the sabbatical year, <laughs> the troughs are raised high and the ground is covered in dark tarp. There's no relationship between the land and the root. So, therefore... They've kept the yeah, sabbatical okay. year. Fine. So we are, keep, uh, we are keeping the sh- sh- Shemitah in a certain way by not using the land. The most devout Jews do not accept these loopholes. And that is exactly what they are, yeah. loopholes. Preferring to import produce from the, uh, abroad or from Palestinian farmers. Interesting. So there's a little insight into where Israel is today regarding keeping the laws of the land interesting huh yes of course of course of course there, there, there was there, there was yes that, could they have done do that of course they could but see the other thing is how do they how do they do their sacrifices there's no temple right yes yes that's exactly right you remember that that's good Okay, so right, right, so right, they don't, they still are questioning that good. yeah, yeah, but honestly, this law was never for salvation anyway, no, it's no. this one, <laughs> right, yes, Lisa. Just this week, it was this weekend, the USA Today published an article that uh, suggests that there are people who are trying to get sacrificed at the temple, Yes. And that they're trying to negotiate with the wow. and there is quite the uproar. We are getting closer and closer, aren't we? We are getting closer and closer. I am so happy to hear that you all believe God. You know what's coming down the road. We know what the end times are. Unlike Ezekiel's uh, message to those Jews who ended up going into the Babylonian exile, they heard the word of the Lord, and they rejected it right? And instead of building up walls and filling the breaches, right? They thought, we're safe in the pot. Right. And they just went on about their merry way. But you and I hear a message like this and we're going, oh, God's word is coming true. We're, our ears are open. There's the spirit of God. There's the spirit. That's the difference between this law of the land, which is written on stone, and, and apart from having the the, uh, the um, anointing of God and the Spirit of God that he gives by faith, right? In the, new te- in the New Covenant, we receive that and we always keep it. In the Old Testament, we see the coming and the going of the Spirit. It falls upon people momentarily. However, the, the sealing of salvation was still there for them. They had the same seal of salvation in the day of their, of their believing that we have here. The seal is is i believe the technicality of the sealing of salvation was still there abraham could not have ever lost his salvation after that point here where he believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness so in the old testament they're credited as righteous in the new testament we are sealed with the holy spirit same thing based in 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 its result same thing security But under the law of the land, not so. No salvation. And the purpose of it was to govern the people. Is that helping clarify some things? Uh, Someone brought up uh, uh, the point about one of our chapters was talking about how if a righteous man begins to do righteously and live righteously, then then he's righteous, right? But then if he turns from that and begins to do evil, what's going to happen? He's going to be judged, right? and for some some reason someone thought well then that means we can lose our salvation or that's talking about a sin unto death that is a truth is there a sin unto death in the new in the new covenant that is potentially there for all Christians if you if you reject god's di- discipline and you refuse to turn and repent and if you are if you are truly defiling or di- dis- digra- disgracing him he has the uh, the option to do that, to take life. We see it in the New Testament, like Ananias and Sapphira were one example that we've looked at. So he can do that. I don't believe God does it often, thankfully. he gives very He's very patient with us. And the, the point to this is the habitualness of sin, right? And so if you won't be disciplined by God, then he'll deal with it. But what has that got to do with this? Are you going to, because you're not losing... Because you're not keeping it, and you've, you've been going along good, and you turn around, now you go the other way. And God says, I'm going to destroy you off the land at that point, right? And have you noticed how often he says, off the land? I'm going to not just destroy you, destroy you off the land, right? Do you lose salvation underneath this one? If you don't have it, the answer is no. It has nothing to do with it. So when you read a passage in Ezekiel that says, if he does this and then he turns around and he goes the other way, then he's going to die and he'll die in his sin. Don't relate that to the covenants of salvation. This is just talking about the law of the land. Are there people that were on the land who had this faith? Yes. yes. Would they lose their salvation? No. no. But they could, they could get judged along with the rest of their cohorts and die but they still have eternal salvation. So am I clarifying anything for anybody? Was this a confusion for anyone in this group? Apparently it was a confusion for some. And I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not you believe in eternal security or not. Well, I know. All I say is come take a covenant class and you will find out you cannot lose your salvation. If in fact you are sealed by God, he does not make mistakes and he does not unseal you. The spirit is given and, one, and it's once for all, right? So, when we're talking about things in Ezekiel about where we see people who are doing good for a while and then turn and start to do bad and they get judged and killed, it's not talking about salvation issues. It's talking about these were people who were living on the land and they were supposed to be representing God in a certain manner. You, huh? Oh, just like us as the church, which means, yeah, in the new covenant, there is potential that God could discipline. But that's what it says in 1 Corinthians. Some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 11. When you come to the Lord's table, examine your heart to make sure that you are not not, uh, violating God's covenant in such a way that you disgrace him. Right? And that you defraud your brother of what is rightfully his, which is your alliance and allegiance and and relationship. Mm -hmm. But even even so, when they choose to go the other way and sin against God, they are showing their disobedience and their lack of faith and belief. Right, right. uh, It can be evidence, it can be evidence of the fact that they don't have this Abrahamic covenant. If they do this walking along and then turn in such a way that then God disciplines and then kills them, it could be an indication as to whether they are saved or not. But we don't even know that. Because sometimes here in the new covenant are there people who are going along and doing really good and all of a sudden, boom, God takes them out. Yes. And you think, ooh, I wonder what happened there. I mean, we don't know. Because we, only God knows the heart. Right, but that shows that heart. It, 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 it is an indication. What does Jesus say in the New Testament? You will know a tree by its fruit. So, for us to have a, a a vague idea, and we can kind of assess people. And I do think it's important for us to evaluate. Evaluate first of all ourselves, but second of all, it is helpful to evaluate others because it's to be iron sharpening iron, and we're to help one another stay in line. We are today, right now, the living visual representation of God upon the land. Now, this is not Israel. This is not the covenant land, and we are certainly not the Jews, but we are his bride. The br- in the new covenant, we are God's bride. We are here, and while we're upon the land here, we are to live in an honorable way before the Lord. Um, there were some verses that, that I found last night that were talking very clearly about that, and, and I don't know if I can, we will get to them or not, but anyway. All right, so I'm hoping that kind of cleared up a few things and got us... Our minds, but it's exciting to kind of knit these things together to see what God said to them right from the beginning is exactly what we're reading right here in Ezekiel. All these hundreds, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, after they were on the land for a period of time and didn't obey, now they're at the point of judgment, and so we we see that God has been so patient with them, and yet they did not listen, even though He told them from the very beginning, "This is what I'm going to have to do to you." I'd be going, ooh, I think I'm going to be obedient, wouldn't you? <laughs> okay, so let's get started on our observations. One of the things that you should be doing, of course, is keeping that at-a-glance chart up to date. Are you doing okay with that? Oh, good, yay! I'm glad to hear that. So I don't have to chastise you, right? <laughs> your at-a-glance chart. We are ne- this is your at-a-glance chart. This is the one. Remember, it looks like this, and it will tell you... It, it should have been given to you in your day one, your week one homework. And I've told you already, this chart should be kept at the front of your your of your, uh, worksheets, or every single week, move it along with you, one or the other. Whatever works best for you. Because what can happen is, is if you put it inside your your, um, your homework area... If you for some reason don't get to it that week and you forget and you keep moving on pretty soon you can't find it because you've lost it somewhere along the way. So I recommend you keep it at the front of your obs- your, uh, all of your book's work, right at the beginning, or, or tuck it in a pocket or something, just so that you have it available. But this at-a-glance this at- chart is going to be invaluable to you. And when we come back after Christmas for Part 2, you're going to be so glad you have it, because it's going to help refresh your memory of what, what we've looked at so far. Okay? All right, so we're going to work on filling that in for us today. Let's start with... Our first one, which is Chapter 22, open your observation worksheets. Also, pull out your um, map, if you have your map handy. That should have also be in your appendix. There was a the map. She made reference to it at the end of the week. Do not forget to put this back in your appendix after you're done with it today so that you can always go back to it and find it again, okay? Again, that's one of those that can get lost in there. It says page 229, if you're looking for it, 229 way in the back of your books. Okay, let's start by just going... This is going to be the shortest review I've ever done. (laughs) I mean, I'm not kidding you. It's going to be so short. All right, tell me what has been going on so far, basically Ezekiel um, 12 to 23 what has it been talking about in these this segment of scriptures so far just think about what recently what is he talking about right now this the final siege of jerusalem right we know what has ter- transpired so far has been two sieges. Daniel and his friends were taken, and Ezekiel, which is where we're at in this point. We opened at the very beginning of this where he, he spoke about being in the fifth year of the, of the exile of King Jehoiakim, right? So we know it was after the second siege. So chap, starting with chapter 12, oh, that's a dead one. Let me get another one. Starting with chapter 12, going at this point through 23 is where, where we're going to see it. will end right here. We're, we're seeing them discussing judgment that's coming. So this would be like a segment division you could write, okay? Add it on your observation or your at-a-glance chart. Judgment that's coming for Jerusalem specifically, right? Because the others have already taken place, right? So I'm putting this at the end, the final siege. Because there were three sieges, and we know that. So this book has been focusing just on telling you what's going to happen in the third and final siege. We know that... um, It's talking about judgment for Jerusalem, but it also covered another really significantly important event. What happened to God's temple? It was destroyed. Well, it's going to be. What has happened so far? The glory left. God's glory left his temple and left Jerusalem, right? So it was going to be, eventually it's going to be the destruction of God's temple Uh, we've already covered that in those, tw- in those 12 and God's glory that left. So that's kind of the, con- the context. And we have one more thing. The last time reference we had was in chapter 20, verse 1. Where are we right now in what we're approaching today? Chap- go to chapter 20, verse 1, and tell me where we are right now. Yeah, seventh year, and he goes on and on and on about the, the, the fifth month and the, and the tenth of the month. So he gives you some very explicit time referencing in there. But I'm going to just put on there to simplify it, the seventh year. So we know at this point where we're, where we're going to be talking today in chapter 22 and 23 that we are in the seventh year, right? All right, now let's talk about key words. To set up chapter 22, see, I told you it was going to be a short review. Are you impressed? Yeah. I can if I want. <laughs> okay, keywords. <laughs> because we had such a long introduction with the other, I had to shorten it somewhere. All right, keywords. <laughs> Tell me some keywords that you see in chapter 22. Okay, the blood, actually the blood is mostly associated with a phrase called, and it's about the, the blood of what, or the bloody who? Bloody the bloody city, yeah, the blood is everywhere, the bloody city, and it's Jerusalem, and so consequently just blood then also becomes that, another key word for that one, so the bloody city and blood, okay? Okay. Profane. Okay. And, and kind of a synonym to that is uh, the idea of profaning is the word defile, right? To defile. Okay. Okay. Stand in the gap is kind of something that we pick up on as significant because... It's sort of a trigger thing, and there are other references that we've seen of this before. We've seen other examples of people that God has called to stand in the gap, right? Even though it's not repeated uh, in a in a large way in this in this particular one, the all th- the reason it kind of rises to the surface as a potential keyword. And if you didn't, if you did not mark it as a keyword, don't fret about it because it's not. It, it really is. Um, not as significant as some of these others. However, what you see in the flow of things here is why does it seem to come up to the surface as being a potential key word? Because there was no, there was no one, no other man. Right. And what has been the flow of thought up to the point where he talks about that there was no, found no one to be in the gap, what has he been uh unfolding for us as a testimony about where they are spiritually he has gone through every level of the society oh. from the top down to Yeah, down. What I'm yeah. everybody is sinny Yes right There's nobody. There's this and there's no one there. There's this and there's no one there. And there's this and there's no one there. So he really does go thoroughly through every potential people group and says of all of them, there's no one, right? Now, um, at first I thought maybe this was just like a hyperbole because I thought about Jeremiah. I thought about Ezekiel. I thought about some of these others. But where are those people? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. Right. So I've kind of changed my mind about that. I do think he's actually making just a true statement that in Jerusalem at this time, there is no one. <laughs> There's no one left. And it reminds me of the storyline then of um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right, where Abraham stands in the gap on behalf of those people. And do you remember how that story talks about if there be five, if there be ten, if there be you know, yeah. So he goes through this whole thing, and and if for that will you still save it? And what happened in the end? Were there five? Were there ten? No. No. And the couple that were there, however, the one or two that were there, what did God do? He brought them out. Yes. But Jeremiah's not in Jerusalem here. He's in captivity in Babylon. No, no, Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah. Oh, is Jeremiah still back there? Oh, but he's in prison, right? I think. No, you're absolutely right. You're right, Angie. And I wasn't sure where Jeremiah was, actually, but I do know he's, I'll bet you, at this point, he's in the pit. Yeah, back there when we read about that pit, remember? Yeah, I think that's where he is. <laughs> He's probably in the pit. Or he may have even been brought out of the pit by this point and taken off because God's going to utterly destroy it. And I don't think Jeremiah was there when that happened. Egypt or on his way to Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Which is why God says there was no one found. So st- the one, this phrase, standing the gap, becomes a potentially a keyword simply because of the, the flow of thought in this and the significance of that statement. Are you following with me? Okay, but if you didn't mark it, 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 it would not be a big fupa on your part, okay? All right, what else? What other kind of keywords that are obvious? Fire. I'm sorry, I said... Dross. Dross. Fire. Clean and unclean. Yeah. Clean and unclean. Okay, so there's the profane and the, ho- and the holy is a contrast, right? Yeah, Wrath. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in significant points. You know, it's like they're the, they're the power punch, and therefore. Right. Okay. All right. So now there are a ton of potentials in this particular chapter for word studies as well. And I know Kay did not ask you to do them, and I know the work was already more than abundant enough. But just in case you have those... How many of you did take time to do some word studies in this? Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I'll pull out mine, and we'll, we'll just do a little sharing as it's appropriate, okay? Just have your word studies available. I have, golly... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, I did 16, I did a bunch of word studies. So um, probably if you name it, I've done it. If not, then I'm totally trusting that you've got it, okay, got me covered. That's the fun thing about the iron sharpening iron, you know. If, if one person doesn't, someone else does, and you share it together, and then we all learn, right? I'm stabbing <laughs> my so, my double-edged sword. <laughs> okay, so let's go through what I think I want to do today in, uh, in order to try to hit on just about as, as much of this as we possibly can is I think we're going to follow our, our um, paragraph titles. We're going to go through and just try to title things as we go. And we'll, by doing that, we can discuss the progressive flow of thought in each of these. So let's start here. Um, we're going to come up with a theme for, for this book at the end, but let's start by looking at verses 1 to 5. What do you see going on here in 22, 1 to 5? Yes, the fact there's an there's a emphatic statement then that this, ju- that this city is going to be judged. And I think it's very interesting how he speaks uh, to Ezekiel, calling him again son of man. And he, and he poses it in the, in the phrase of a question, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Why do you think he does that? I, I mean, I've, this is not in our homework anywhere, but I, it just kind of struck me the last few times I've been looking at this. Why would God say, Son of man, will you judge the bloody city? He says it twice. Yes. Emphatic. Yeah. So, what do you think? What do you? What I mean? I really want to jump right into this, you guys. What is this saying for us? In trouble. If you were Ezekiel and you were living in that day, you know how dear and near and dear Jerusalem is to the Jewish people, correct? And the the sanctuary and the you know, the temple is there, and so forth. God comes to you and says, Raquel, will you judge the bloody city? Will you? What would you have said to the Lord at that point? Well, yeah. (laughs) If you know God's intention is, I'm going to judge it. By this time, of course, certainly by this point, Ezekiel's had many encounters with God through these visions, right? I mean so it's not like this is the first time that he's that vision that he went to the temple and he saw all the stuff that he didn't that Ezekiel probably didn't know was going on. Yeah. Would you say we as Christians today are inclined to, to make judgments like God is asking Ezekiel here. Are we are we in our churches keeping our churches pure? Are we stepping up to our pastors or to our elders or to our Sunday school leaders or to our teachers or to whoever is in leadership and saying, what, what are you doing? What's going on here? Why are we involved in this? Why do we? You know, this is what, and Ezekiel, he's actually calling Ezekiel and saying, Ezekiel, will you judge your precious holy city and all that's in it? And he's asking, he's really I think it's a challenge kind of a thing. He's not, it isn't so much he's emphatically saying, do it. He is saying, will you, have you assessed this? Have you thought this through? Have you looked, have you observed? Have you paid attention? And I really think there's a call in that for you and I. What was the calling of Ezekiel back in chapter 3? Yeah. To be a watchman over the house of Israel, Right? And he says, when I speak a word, what are you to do with it? Listen. doesn't matter if they listen or not. Yeah, you give it to them. You tell them, thus saith the Lord, or these are God's commandments, or these are God's principles. This is God's truth. This is how you must live, right? So as God's children today, I think this is a good question for us. Will you judge Will you judge whatever it needs to be judged? Will you judge? Will you judge in your home, whether things are being handled the way they should in a godly manner? Are you representing God well through your family life? Will you judge, even in your in your work dealings and your business dealings, in the situations where you have control? Will you make a judgment that's righteous? Will you, in your churches, keep people accountable for? Living righteously, doing righteously, following the principles of God's love and truth and righteous and holy living, will we? Did y'all catch that in there? I just, it caught me. Huge, especially with what's going on in Houston right now. Yes. Is, right. You not know, And I, for one, have a neighbor and some distant family members. Right. And I have not what he's calling what he here is calling me to do is to go to them and say, Do you know that this lifestyle will cause you to go to hell? Yeah. Yeah. I Potentially. Now, certainly we're not saying that you should just pick up and go and confront people right and left just because you see something going on. It really does have to be relation, you know, through a relationship and through the, the Lord opening or closing a door. So you've, you have to use wisdom. You have to use grace, give grace. You have to be loving, certainly. And I think we all know that. But when God puts you in a position where you need to take a stand one way or another and it is, it is basically... I have to either say something or I have to be like many of these others in days of Ezekiel who just walked away. You have to make a decision. And this is what he's saying to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, will will you judge? If it's associated with a church or somebody that says they're a believer. Yes. big makes a big difference, doesn't it? Then it you know, that's one thing. That's right. If it's, if it's associated with an unbeliever, then it's like, don't, unbeliever, don't Right, sin. right. Well, then you're throwing your pearls before the swine so, in, in essence. In that, but that's not the message. True. So it's one of right. Not their true. Lifestyle. True. They Although sometimes Craig telling them that their lifestyle is sin is also required. That's so, true. you know. But that, but it's more than just homosexuality when they're unbelievers. I mean, they're Well, sure. They're, they're doing other things too, you know they. Are. Well, that's true. And actually the best way to be graceful in it is to throw it all in one bucket so that you don't hit on one point but on all it's of it. Of your sins. Sin, so, yeah. <laughs> yes. Some of the commentary that we were reading was saying that Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was the Son of Man. And that all these times where you see when Ezekiel's called the Son of Man, it's kind of configuring some of the things that Jesus he's having to do, some of the same things that Jesus does when he comes. Oh, yeah. And what did Jesus do when he came against the, the scribes and the therapy? The, uh, you whitewashed tombs, you yeah. you brood of vipers. Yeah, he wasn't, he didn't hold any, any words back, did he? Okay, so we really would, you know, I didn't mean to spend quite as much on that, but I, that one struck me when he said, Son of Man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? I mean, I think he's really calling him to say, what's more important, your comfort zone or my my holiness, my holy name being honored and protected. And also, are you doing as you were called, Ezekiel, to be a watchman over the house of Israel? And being a watchman doesn't mean just being their friend. It means sometimes calling them on the carpet when they're, when they're in sin and letting them know they need to turn, they need to change, they need to repent. Because after all, if they don't, what? What? there's going to be judgment, right? And that is exactly where we're at here. So in in 1 to 5, then, what what we see is he says, he he calls them the bloody city of idolatry, right? Well, at this point, that's a really good question. Did you all hear Carol's question? At this point, he's in Babylon, right? So how is he getting this message to Jerusalem? Is this a message for those in Jerusalem? Apparently not. Who's this message for? The ones that God had brought out before in the first two sieges, and they're now in their exile. They are the remnant that God is going to preserve, but what must he do with that remnant? They have to be cleansed and purged and purified and refined. And so what he's doing at this point, is there any hope for Jerusalem? No. No. As a matter of fact, later when we move forward in the next couple of chapters, what we see is when he goes in there, basically they are utterly wiped out, right? They're pretty much wiped out. And so what God says, though, is is through Ezekiel to the exiles, he's saying to them, this is what God is going to do, and I want you to learn from this. What's sad is, many of them haven't. Last week, we went through a, uh, a little list of, that, that showed us the, the flow line of what was going on with the elders of that time that were in exile with uh, Ezekiel, right? And how much time had passed from the time when Ezekiel, uh, when they first came and said they wanted to speak to the Lord, and the Lord said no, no. And now they came back again and they said, we want to speak to the Lord. And the Lord says, I will not even speak to you, right? How much time had passed from the first point to the second point? I think it was a year, right? It was a full year. And I I said, that's just like Nebuchadnezzar. It was a full year. God gave Daniel the vision, told him what was going to happen. A year later, he's walking on his palace roof, and God judges him because he's not repented yet. That's what the elders were doing. So the answer is, this message really isn't to those in Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem are so far gone, because guess what those in Jerusalem should have been learning by this point? What has happened already to Israel at this point? Two sieges. But even before that, Israel already been right. And the ten tribes had, had in 722, which is why we're going to get into our next chapter about the two sisters. Look, you've already been demonstrated over and over and over. And now at this point, there have been two sieges taking Jer- all the way now. Where the only thing left now is Jerusalem itself, the heart of it. And God's glory has already departed. Yes. Oh, is he? He's. Take, the Babylonians take, him, take out. him and they take him out, they right? Let him go back. Okay, good. Okay, and we have to do Jeremiah one day, so I can fit that one in too, because I don't know all, enough about Jeremiah yet. It sure would be. Actually, during the holidays, I would recommend that. Go through the book of Jeremiah during the holidays while this is fresh and try to plug some, some points in. I know, like your holiday. I'm sorry. It's all right. Like you're going to do that. I'm speaking to the wrong group here. Okay. All right. So the bloody city of idolatry is, what, is how she is described in one, uh, in 1 through 5. Now in 6 to 12, what is said of, of her. It goes on to further... Further expound, doesn't it? Okay. Behold, the rulers are also there's bloodshed and idolatry everywhere. And now he's saying the, the the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. So now we've got the rulers. Oops, wrong color. Gotta remember to change my marker. Hold on. Fix that. Rulers. Okay. Okay. The rulers, and what are the rulers doing? What are some key words in that s- section there? Okay. The word the the word blood is in there a couple of times. Shedding blood, and how are they shedding blood? By what kind of actions? Oppression. Slander, acts of lewdness, defilement, abomination. Wow, lots of words in there. So there was a potential treasure trove of words to be looking up. Possibly there were there any? Are there any words in there that some of you found insightful or helped to uh, clarify things when you did your word studies? No. The lewdness. What is what is lewdness? Mm Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wickedness, yeah, for lewdness and wickedness, it kind of does. It is kind of a an umbrella word yeah. for all kinds of actions of evilness. And the idea of evil plan, I do really like that—a plan or a device of wickedness, a um, evil plan, mischievous purposes. Right? So they thought it out. Yeah, yeah it's like they knew what they were doing. Intentional. That's exactly right. So the rulers are um, th- th- are in are committing acts of oppression and lewdness. That's that's scary. And the word oppression. Did did anybody look up the idea of oppression? I want to read this to you because it's very interesting. These are the two primary over. Uh, Umbrella words for this particular uh, paragraph area. But it talks about, oppression means cruelty or extortion. It's um, injurious. It's uh, the idea of extorting for gain. So in other words, it it also has tied to financially oppressing people, keeping over people financially. Or coercion also is another word. So very interesting. So they are coercing the people under them. They're extorting them, right? In that way, there's an oppression, and then there's this lewdness of of heinous activities that these are doing. And these are the rulers. We talked about the interests and profits a lot. Like, yes. It does. Or, if not financial, prestigious. And boy, if this doesn't make me think about our politicians today. I'm not trying to slam. No, somebody may have a politician family member, and if you do, I'm so sorry. But, you know, I mean, I'm sorry to say this. But, you know, this is exactly what they're saying. The idea that, that people in rulership position oppress people by getting a thumb on them and coercing them and manipulating them, and all for their own personal gain often, which is not what it's supposed to be about. The rulers of Israel are to be there to look over the house the house of Israel, to watch over them, to make sure that their best interests are being worked and, and um, executed. And that's what our government is supposed to be doing for us, looking over us, watching out for the laws of our land, making sure that... Everyone is giving opportunity, not equality, right? Opportunity. And that, that hopefully we b- rely upon the good hearts of individual people to make sure the needs of people are handled. But it's not the job of the government to, do, to coerce us, right? Which is what we see that these rulers are doing. Yes. And then it, the result is this social sin that happened because it, it's a horizontal, you're not right here. Right. You're not be right here. Absolutely. And isn't that why God's law is the way it is? Thou shalt love w- what first? Love the Lord your God with all your hearts and then love your neighbor as yourself. Right? <laughs> exactly.
1: Same thing. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, Phrase, despised holy things. Yes. If they're not going to yeah. respect the Lord. God. Gonna, they won't gonna respect their, their fellow man. They're worshiping themselves and that no rules yeah. apply. Right. That's right. And it's all out for personal gain then, which is what that, that other word of um, uh, oppression was about. The idea that it's for personal gain. They're oppressing people for personal thing gain. Yes. That's right. I wonder if that's why God kept calling them the sheep. They would just go wherever, you know, whoever was leading them, and often it was the false prophets, and they would just follow, right? They'd, and and where Ezekiel is told as a shepherd, will you judge Israel? Will you? So you, that's, I think that's what we have to go away today with saying to ourselves. Are we personally making sure that we are looking around In the arena of our control, now certainly we can't do anything about things that we have no control over, but in the arena of our control, are we making judgments so that we are evaluating the, the input that we have, whatever input that is, however small or however great, are you being faithful to God in it? Are you doing what God is calling Ezekiel to do and make a judgment? All right, so now in 13 to 16, what do we see? He says, okay, this is what you're doing. You're a bloody city of idolatry. Even your rulers are, are lording over you through oppression and lewdness. And what does he say in 13 to 16, then? What is God's response? <laughs> yeah. And you have forgotten me. Yeah. The, the, yes, okay, I like this. You have forgotten me. I love that. You have forgotten me, and therefore, I will what? I will judge. I will judge her. Um, there's a question posed in there, too, I thought was really good, in 14. What does it say there in 14? When I, when I finally am fed up enough with you that I come and I judge, and you and I know there's a day of judgment coming, right? For the end of the age. And in that day, the question is, can your heart endure? Can your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? And th- so what is the implication there? What is God saying? No you, can't. Yeah, no, you can't. Exactly. When I come to deal with you, when I come to judge, uh, there is no power great enough upon the face of this earth that can thwart off my hand, Right? God's power, when he comes to deal, it will, be, it will be emphatic, it will be powerful, it will be wrath, which is the word that he uses in here, right? Okay, then in 17 to 22, what's going on there? That after he says that he's going to deal with them, then what? Does he explain why? Huh? Huh? Yeah, did you see in 17 to 22 kind of another imagery thing? There's, a, there's an illustration or an imagery that he gives to them. And it's one that would be very common for them of that day in particular. What was the imagery illustration in 17 to 22? The refiner. The refiner. And how, what does he call the people there, Israel, Jerusalem? The they are the dross. That is not a good thing, right? Did anybody look those words up, the idea of the dross? Okay, tell me what it is, just by description. It's actually within the text. It's the impurities that rise to the surface when you are refining something, right? So they are, when God comes through to refine them, they are the dross that he's trying to get rid of, right? That's very interesting. So he says, about Israel, she has become dross, right? So I'm going to judge her. Why? Because she's become dross. Right? And 23 to 31, I think this part was really, okay. Sorry. Somebody's going to be out. Remember, the chart comes by the mail, okay? (laughs) Okay, thanks to our wonderful administrator. She handles that for us. Okay, 23 to 31. Let's just make a list of who God takes care of here, what he does with them. First of all, tell me uh, what you titled that particular segment. Well, what's, the, what's the conclusion of it when he says... Um, Yes, they're going to have this brought upon their head. I think it was interesting, though, is he makes a statement in 24. Again, the son of man, like kind of like the question at the beginning, will you judge them, son of man, right? And now he makes another one. Son of man, say to her. So here's what he's trying to convey to them clearly. He says of her that they're a land that what? Two things. Cleanse. It's not cleansed and? Not rained on. Now, what if, just thinking about Israel as a nation and how she was birthed and what God had intended for her, what is it saying? She's not cleansed. The land is not cleansed. She's not, she really cleansed. She's she's not pure. pure. Right? They have not gotten rid of idolatry. They have not gotten rid of the, the, the lifestyle of impurity, those, the, the sinfulness of the, the actions of the people, right? They have not purified them, their lives. They have not purified the land, either one, right? Yes, thank you. That's exactly right. So when he said, and they've not been rained on, he's talking about basically no blessing, right? So you've not, you are still impure, both the people in the land. Therefore, you, so, and you're not cleansed. And secondarily, there's no rain. He says, this is what, the day in which I am going to visit you for your judgment. I'm coming to you when you're still impure and when there's no blessing left for you. Because there's not even anything left to bless. Sometimes with our children, do you... You know, you want to encourage your kids, right? But you've got a kid that's wayward or that's disobedient or he's going through a phase or she's going through a phase. And you're just looking for opportunities to bless them or to encourage them or to pat them on the back. And so you're just grasping at something, right? To try to say, good job, you know, here, have a treat. Go to the movie on me or something, right? So this is what the Lord says. In that day, nothing has been cleaned. And there, there is no possibility for even for blessing. He says, I can't. No rain. It, it basically goes back to Deuteronomy 28 or back into that Leviticus passage I read at the beginning where he told them, if you obey me, I will bless you. And one of the blessings is I will rain upon you and make you fruitful. Right? So, in the day that I'm going to. You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. Wow. So she's not cleansed and she's not rained on. Now, who are the people groups that are, that are discussed then that follow that? Yeah, the prophets, priests, princes, the people, and then the last one in 30? Even a man. I mean, he takes it down to the single individual. There's not even one individual among you, right? I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me. Now, when we did our cross-references on that, what were your insights on that? I know we, did, uh, we looked up some uh, scriptures. Let's see if I can find mine. Uh, Diane, you brought this up to me yesterday. Right? Yeah, Moses. Yes, okay. Okay. Um, Exodus 13. Um, after the Lord had delivered the slaves from Egypt through Moses, plagues, plagues, plagues. finally Pharaoh lets them go. And afterwards, uh, the Lord calls Moses up to the mountain for them to talk. And while Moses is away, the people go, <laughs> still going to go. And um, while well, the Lord says to Moses that the people you brought out <coughs> of the have defiled themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that's when Moses essentially stands in the gap. He uh, pleads for the Lord. to. Pr- he never uses the phrase, consider your holy name among the nations. Mm-hmm. But the principle is there. Right. Right. Okay. So God is just looking for someone here, right? Okay. So how do we bring this forward? Has there been any kind of um, call in our lives in the New Testament passages that say of of us the same thing? Are we called to stand in the gap? Or, Or are we called into this kind of holy living? that he is demanding of these people? And the answer is, of course, yes. We all know that. We're, did anybody go and do some research and find verses or anything that they want to share on this? Cross-referencing? Okay, yeah. Actually, that's out of the Peter one that I pulled out. It, she's, he, she, she said that you are a holy priesthood or a holy nation, right? Um, I, I looked in First Peter 1, and I pulled out these verses, 13 to 19. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because if we're going to take this and apply it to us, what we have to do is say we've got a judgment coming. We know it's coming, Right? we're aware of it as the church it's becoming more and more evident we're getting closer to that time in in the ages right so to take what's going on in the lives of Ezekiel and these people and apply it to you and I we have to look forward to the judgment we know is coming the one that God has prophesied to us over the ages and we need to be believing and he says so keep your eyes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Um, Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's right out of Leviticus. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. Now, is that not what he was saying? To them, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, um, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and, and spotless, the the blood of Christ. Yes. I like Ephesians five 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Yes, yes, that covers it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really profound when it says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. I thought, wow, that's really uh, right in line with what we see going on here. This is what God, while you're, in our case, it's while you're on the earth as God's church. For them, it was while you are God's people on the land, conduct yourselves in holiness and in fear, understanding that it's a holy, righteous God that is going to judge one day, right? Um, and so we see in t- these last verses then the reason that she is called this bloody city is because she is not she is not cleansed and not rained on. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay, so did everyone hear that? I just want to repeat it so that make sure it get a, it gets on the uh, recording as well. But that the day of the Lord, when he talks about that day of visitation and that day of wrath, in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is is not a specific day. It is a time period in which God is going to deal. And so, of course, in this case, for us, what we are looking forward to is that for not looking forward to, as in we're. but looking forward to as in its yet future but in the future God will come and judge Israel again right to purify her refine her and purge out those who won't bow their knee and therefore he can then take a nation who is wholly his and place them upon the land and then fulfill his word to, uh, to Abraham that covenant that he promised him that there would be a land a people upon the land that fulfills what Romans 11 is speaking of that that in that day he is going to fulfill it and all Israel shall be saved. But that's going to happen in that day at the end of the age. And that is a time frame at the end of the age, at the day, in the day of his visitation. It's not a single day, it's a time frame. Okay, so, all right, so the theme then, what did you title your, your chapter 22? Did you title it for your, your at-a-glance chart? Wow, that's good. Murder and bloody. bloody. I do like the fact, Marion, particularly that you picked up on the word bloody because that one is a real dominant word in here. The idea of blood seems to override or have a, also have that idea of an umbrella over all that's going on. It's, it's a phrase that they seem to understand probably more thoroughly than we do. Those of us who did Leviticus... We should be going, ah, yeah, I remember this. But if you haven't done Leviticus, you can still see it by the repetitious use of that word blood and bloody throughout the whole thing. The fact that God opens it and calls them a bloody city is really significant. Yeah. I title it, Judge the Bloody City. Her time will come. Yeah, her time will come. All right. The bloody city. So anything about the bloody city... However else you might want to finish that off would be a good title. I do think it's important to pull in the, t- the idea that God called her the bloody city. In chapter um, 24, we're going to see it brought back up again, and it'll bring it to its culmination. I and mean, he repeats it, showing you that the fact that, there, that he sees them as having blood on their hands, that this is the part of the reason for this judgment, Okay? All right, so now let's move into 23. This one ought to be fun. It shouldn't take us too long to go through because it was pretty, I think, pretty self-explanatory. Let me see if I can find my chart. Hold on. Did you guys do a little chart of these two women and lay it out before you? Uh, Something that would, would... distinguish the two when you hit the verses 36 to 42 and it says and they so then I just pulled my chart together in one segment at the bottom to make application to both sides that's how I did it but it's up to you I own the reason I show you my chart sometimes is just so that you can say oh that would work you know or if you have ideas please share them you know, but I, I broke it down that w- in the things that were significant or specific to each of the two sisters, and then when it got to the part where it talked about both of them together, speaking of they, 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 then I pulled it under this segment down here, okay, so that it applies to both. Okay, so now, tell me what we learned there. Who are these two sisters? Nobody can pronounce. <laughs> yeah, Ohola and Oholala. Oh good. Yeah. means her own tabernacle That's right. They did. Wow. That's really good. Oh, wow. And do you get the star for the day because that's like really I like that. Wow. Both of the, And both of those actually very well describe them, don't they? Because that is what Samaria did. Does everyone know that? The Samaria set up her own altars up, and that way the people wouldn't have to go back down to Jerusalem, and this was the big sin. And it is why I believe God took them into their captivity first. I think that is the ultimate thing that God did. He wanted to destroy that, that alternate way of approaching God and get it off the land, and he, so he took those ten up into their... Um, captivity. And in some ways, we kind of see that because even in how they're described um, in, in our... Oops, let me see. What did I... Yeah? Yes. That's exactly right. Tent is a tabernacle. So it went in the definition. I've lost my sheet. I just gave it to you. I put it back in my book. Hold on. I've got to get myself together here. <laughs> I pulled it out and then put it away because I'm, I'm so careful to put everything away by habit. Okay. All right. So now, what do we know then? Let's, let's do our word study or our keywords rather first. Let's look at those keywords. Keywords for this particular one have to do with those two sisters, right? So we'll start with them. O-H-O-L-A-H, Ahola, Ahola, which is Samaria. Right. And you said it means set up her own tent. Cool. Cool. I like this. Okay, and the next one is her sister Aholava. One of, the, one of the students in the evening group saw me yesterday in Sunday school, and he says, I've been practicing those names all week long. I still can't pronounce them. <laughs> me either. I didn't work very hard on it, though, so i got to say. Okay, and this one means my tent is in her. That's cool. So that's what those, those word definitions are. That's neat. I wish we would had those to look up. That would have been good in the homework, huh? Okay, some other keywords in there. What else did you see for keywords? Certainly there's all those geographical places. I hope you marked those, right? Okay, harlot. There's that lewdness again. We keep finding that one, don't we? Judgment. Thank you. Oh, we only have one person here giving me words. Come on, you guys. Judgment or wrath, right? All right. How about the word lusted? Did y'all catch that one too? That one was used, used a bunch in this one. Defiled and defiled. Okay, so the, that kind of gets us started. So we can see, again, it seems like the theme f- keeps flowing through consistently, doesn't it, with the, with the identifying qualities or markers of this city. They seem to be consistent, uh, no matter where we move, the clean, the unclean, the idea of, perf- of God uh, sending his wrath. So let's go through and do our, um, okay, here's our theme. Let's do our, our outline on this. One to four. Four is what? What happens in one to four? Who gets introduced to us? Two sisters. All right. Yeah. And I thought one of the, the uh, probably one of the most identifying qualities of them is, is described for us in this segment here. How, how else are they described? It's, I mean, we know later it goes into all the harlotry, so we get lots of that. But what's a unique statement in these first four verses about them? They're of one mother. I thought that was really uh, kind of significant because it shows that they both came from the same roots, right? Their beginnings were at the same place together. So two sisters, I put of one mother. Now you may not, but uh, you may want to. It's up to you. Of one mother, okay? Now, when you go in in, uh, 23.8, it actually goes in and talks about how their roots were together. At what point were their roots together? In Egypt, right. So this has to do with their time in Egypt. And when you go back to chapter 20, verses 4 to 14, Kay took a uh, in my uh, notes. She said, go back and look at 20 and see how this fits together with this. What do you see going back in 20? If you go back there, because it's, what it's going to do is it talks about her roots, right? And what was going on then in, tw- in those verses there, what was being described to us? The, their history, right? In chapter 20. And it, talked, it's, it said in those verses how God brought them out of Egypt, right, into the land of milk and honey, right? He uh, told them to cast away their idols from Egypt, and what did they do? They did not. They rebelled against that, and they were not willing to listen to the Lord, um, so, we can just by going through and looking at that chapter 20 again, you can see how this, this statement here that they are two sisters of one mother takes you back to Egypt, but takes you back to the fact that this is where they, that the birthing of this nation began before they themselves split, right? Yes. I think it's significant in verse 4, it says, In they became mine. Yes. Be- okay, and that takes us back to when we see the recounting of God uh, making covenant with them, right? And they, they were, they, he made them his. Okay, so let's go back. Let's look at the next segment, though. Let's talk about what we see in verses 5 to 10. Who's the dominant subject in these verses? Samaria. Samaria. And what do we learn about Samaria? Samaria lusted after Assyria. All right. She lusted after Assyria. It's pretty straightforward. What information do you see in there about her? We know that Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom, right? Now, she had asked you to pull out your maps and take a look to see where it is. Did you find out that that Samaria is not on your map? No. (laughs) Wasn't that lovely? I'm like, Kay, what were you thinking, sweetheart? You forgot to put Samaria on the map for us. (laughs) But where do we know Samaria is? North North of Jerusalem. So that area north of Jerusalem. We also know that the Samaria uh, was, the Samarian um, area up there where the ten uh, northern tribes lived. And those are the ten tribes who then were taken into captivity by who? Assyria, whom they did what? Lusted after. Isn't that interesting? The one that they were they they were basically prostituting themselves to. Now how do you see this in relationship today? What is this talking about that they lusted after them? Is this purely a sexual statement? Is this really saying about sexual intimacy? No. What is it talking about? Right. It is, it's political alliances, it's it's financial alliances, it's um, oil, <laughs> it's, you know, w- different kinds of products that would be brought, wares that would be brought to and from. It's also political strength through friendship and hoping that one another would keep each other's back covered, right? Um, I, I thought about, you know, in today's world, we don't talk <laughs> about harlotries and lusting after, but we say, Don't you know in business? Well, don't they make funny bedfellows? But we make the same kind of inference. It's the idea of this this lusting thing that uh, results in some kind of benefit for both sides. But they do it in a way that is defiled. It is unethical, even. Oh, yeah, yeah. And want to align with them, I think probably for their physical safety more than anything. Yes, absolutely. It all, it all has to do with what is, what, the dealings that they do for the purpose of, of whatever is advantageous for them, whatever helps them out. So you might get, quote, into bed with somebody which is our phrase today, oh, they got in bed with one another. I I think of this, that often lawyers will do that. And if they end up with a common goal, their clients might even be on opposing sides, but for the sake of both of them getting something, they might get in bed together, change their stories enough so that then they get a a case won by simply through an unholy alliance of sort, but they both get what they want in the end. and And righteousness doesn't win. Truth doesn't win out because these two got in bed together. That's what's really talk, being talked about here. They lusted after Assyria, and so what does it say in verse nine that God did? He gave her. He gave her over to Assyria, and that, if we want to do a time reference on that, that is seven twenty two BC. Of course, he gave them over to Assyria. Also, in and both are true, but we know that the final the final uh, hammer came down on them in 722 when Assyria then took them into captivity before these were the people that they were they were trying to have these political alliances with and trying to make deals with and trying to woo sort of into a relationship and what had God told Israel when they were birthed as a nation what were they supposed to do they were to be the head not the tail They were not to have covenants with these other nations, as a matter of fact, to the point that they weren't even supposed to allow their daughters or their sons to marry people from these other nations. So not only on a political level were they not to interact with one another, they were not even on a personal level to have these relationships. They were to be utterly and completely set apart for God. Yeah, yes. You <laughs> don't know who the God is here. Right. So Assyria sent one priest back to tell the people this. about Jehovah, but they didn't give up all their other gods, which now, years later, when Jesus is on the scene, this is why the Samaritans are totally, the Jews don't like them anymore because mm-hmm. they're
1: totally
0: synchronistic with, they still had. Right. I, God. I thought that was interesting. Right. I I just am so blown away, but the more and more I look at this, and yet, how does this, do we not do the same thing? Are we not really just as guilty? Look at where America has gone, where she came from as a nation, and where we have gone. We have gone morally down 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 we have walked away from god the ten commandments do not any longer hang on our walls the prayer has been removed from from the school the one uh the worship of the one true god has now become put on equal playing with everything else and actually the reality is it's even dropped below because the others are all protected but christianity and anyone christian gets stomped on and it's because, our, because we as Christians have not held our, our, um, our, well, we haven't held to our standards. We've been complacent and, and too politically correct. We're allowing too much. Instead of, like Ezekiel, Ezekiel, will you judge them? Instead of standing there and saying, this is right and this is wrong, we've allowed so much to come in that now we're polluted. And it happens, just a little compromise. By little by little. That's right. And then the lies of the world come in, and they deceive the people to believe that we, the righteous ones, are the wrong ones. So it's a world turned upside down. Uh, Several years ago, I did a program. I I think I was talking with Lois. I can't remember. Just recently, (laughs) it came to my mind that I did a program for our our women, our Protestant women of the chapel. It was our program, and I was the program's director. And we did the thing. It was called Upside Down... uh, embracing the cross in an upda- upside-down world. And so we did everything upside-down and backwards. Everybody came dressed with their clothing turned inside-out and backwards, and all the, all the decorations were turned upside-down, and it was really fun. Um, but it was true, and then the speaker talked about the fact, you know, this is what the world says, but this is what God says. You know. And we have come to a place now where we, we are starting to believe the world is right about things, that we should be More PC. We should be more complacent, or more uh, allowing, or more generous with you know allowing them to do the things that they want to do. And well, it's their life, and it's their way, and they can do what they want, and it's their body, and it's their this or whatever. And we're not standing there and saying, no, this is this is unrighteous, this is unholy, this is wrong. We need to stand in the gap. We do need. We need to stand in the gap, (laughs) Marion. Yes, we do need to. We need to stand in the gap. He called Ezekiel to do this. This is what we need to do. Uh, just that some are. Yes. Are some. Well, certainly. We, the you know what? When the church gets raptured out of they're here, we're, they're going to be in trouble. Of course. Of course. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. yes. That's not Uh yes, yes. That's an example. For us to look. Yes. It says that the privilege she had for the professor. She should know that, you know, what happened just when it's like that, okay? So but she did it. Yes. That's but the privilege she had, not today. We're doing the same thing. We've yeah, what happened is the people before us sinned and sinned and sinned and we became Conformed more to them than they did to us, and so now we're more accepting of that. So now, what used to be an absolute wrong place to be, we consider us as being right when in reality we're still not right. We still need to move further to the right to get back in line with God. Especially we are Christians, we know Jesus. Yes. Yes, we're in more danger. Yes, 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 Yes. you're absolutely right. We are actually in more danger today. We have more gospel, we have more truth, we have more available to us. No one in this room has not pretty much grown up with either a Bible in and around them in some capacity or another, and the Word of God on the airs and on the TV all around them. To whom much is given? Much is required. okay let's move on we got a lot to get through here okay so we know that for the first one was Samaria that's five to ten some of these are pretty obvious 11 to 21 is Jerusalem and she is more corrupt so it's exactly what Union just said so I'll just put on here what she said more corrupt than her sister So it just shows that the gradual decline, right, of the standard, it even got worse. They thought the Samaritans were so bad, but they were even worse, right? So what I thought was really interesting is, in, in, as it said, that she uh, lusted after the Assyrians, right? And she, her roots in Egypt had never been given up either, by the way. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but then this is the one that caught my attention. And e- Egypt's paramours now probably pronouncing that wrong Did you look that up i thought this was really cool and it explains a lot of have you guys ever had questions about why did solomon have so many wives why did david have so many wives why did abraham have more than one wife Mm -hmm. did he not know any better right well what what and where had they learned this practice of polygamy of having multitude wives, or of concubines, or of, quote, handmaidens, right? Where did that come from? This scripture tells us. Where did it come from? Egypt. Initially, that's where they were introduced to it, through Egypt. I looked it up. The word paramours means concubine. It means an illicit sexual partner, meaning multiple wives and concubines. These were acceptable practices in the nations around Israel, But not so in God's uh, uh, nation. It was not sanctioned by Yahweh for them to have... Carol, didn't you and I even talk about this just recently? You'd ask me a question about the... Somebody did, about multiple wives. And I said, you know, why God allows it, I don't know. But here it shows it. What did we talk about last week about God allowing certain things? (laughs) His permissive will versus his perfect will. God has a perfect will. He has a law. This is his standard. What is God's standard concerning uh, sexual partners and wives? One wife, not wives, one wife, right? And the two shall become one. one. And it's a picture of God in his church or Christ in his church. It's a picture of God in his people. And the oneness in the two becoming one is what the marriage is all about. So when you violate that by having polygamy or by having concubines or by having, in our case today, what? What do we have today? We have, okay, well, we do have that too. That's a perversion of it. But what do we have today? We don't necessarily have polygamy, but what do we have? Yeah, divorce and remarriage. There you go. Yeah, fornication, we've got adultery, we've got all these things going where we're out having multiples of relationships as well. Boy, I got you guys stirred up on that one, didn't I? But did you did you all look that one up? Did anybody look up that word paramours? Were you curious? You started? Oh, amour. Love. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why I Yeah. Well, it's... It's funny that more is in there. I think it's just coincidental, but because because its root word is totally different, it's actually more along the word of uh, polygamy, the word, the original word, Uh, and I can't pronounce it, but p i l e g e s h or p i y l e g e s h. So it's number sixty three seventy. And it means concubine or paramour, and it specifically is an Ill, an Ill, illicit sexual partner. And in our case, illicit means not sanctioned by God, not sanctioned by Yahweh. So it's, it's that kind of a relationship. Oh, my gosh, are we out of time? How did that happen? Oh, okay. Um, so... I'm going to send this to you, and you'll get the rest of this. I am so sorry that we did not get through this. I tried so hard. It's just too much. How do you do three chapters in one morning? It's impossible. I wanted to, the one thing I did want to see in 24 is to see the progression of how these, uh, the example of uh, that Ezekiel was told to not weep when his wife was killed, did that blow you away? Do you know that Jerusalem is called the wife of God? You know that, right? I went in and looked also at a verse Zechariah 28 where where God calls Israel the apple of his eye cuz one of the repeated words in that 24 was a de- the desire of their eyes. And it was going to be taken from him, his wife, the desire of his eyes. And then later he speaks to the people and he says, the desire of your eyes and the delight of your soul and the pride of your power, that's going to be taken from you. So those were the three examples. First, God says, I am going to destroy the, the apple of my eye, Jerusalem, right? Then he says, to Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife, the desire of your eye, and you're going to demonstrate to the, to the people in exile how I want you to, to treat them. When God says of Jerusalem, I'm going to destroy her, he says to them, I, am, I will not relent, I will not pity, and I will not be sorry. So therefore, he tells Ezekiel, don't you mourn. You don't be sorry. Are you following it? Then in the last one, he says to the people, they are not to mourn, right? Why? Why not mourn? It's righteous judgment.